focus on objective facts. Employers have a tendency to use terms that are conclusory terms, which are subjective opinion. Whether or not somebody treats somebody badly or not is a subjective opinion. So you got to focus on objective facts. Because, yeah, because oftentimes, especially with you know, small to medium-sized businesses that have the person running them who built the business, they have a gut feel as to who they want around them. And they've been successful with that. But they have a tendency to express themselves in subjective terms, not objective facts. You know, this uh, person's toxic. All right, well, that's a, sub, that's a subjective conclusory term. Why are they toxic? G- give me five, six, six examples. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another great episode of Out of the Hourglass. NCG's managing partner, Brian Nolan, takes over the mic as our host for an important and eye-opening conversation on the topic of labor laws and employer protection. Joined by David Walton, an experienced labor and employment attorney at Fisher Phillips in Philadelphia, we dive into the complicated world of employer-employee relationships with a goal to equip you with the appropriate tools and approaches to dealing with employee problems. From documentation to setting expectations, separation agreements, and objective facts, this is a conversation we encourage you to bookmark and revisit to stay informed. Being informed is your best defense in mitigating risk. Out of the Hourglass is a podcast channel dedicated to helping small business owners and contractors visualize their goals, develop high-performing teams, and build sustainable growth. It's time to get out of the hourglass. Okay, as always, Molly, thank you. Mine does such a great job, doesn't she, with the introduction of what we're talking about here, which is labor laws and employer protection. Uh, boy, this is a long overdue podcast. Brian Nolan's <laughs> my name. Uh, this podcast today is intended to equip uh, listeners with the appropriate tools and approaches to dealing with employee problems. Um, I'm guilty of often saying, saying hire slow and fire fast. Uh, what, what we really mean by that is don't keep people around who aren't a fit, but we often fire too quickly without documentation. Mm-hmm. We find ourselves in court or uh, significant settlements. And this podcast will start this conversation to get it right. Um, I'd like to welcome my guest today, David Walton. David Walton uh, is a partner in the law firm Fisher Phillips. He focuses his practice in this area, um, in employment litigation, as well as trade secrets and restricted covenants. He brings deep experience in labor and employment law. Uh, he works to mitigate client risks and uh, achieve their goals through cost-effective and pragmatic approaches. Dave lives in Bluebell, PA, uh, among other things, Dave serves on a board with me of the Nolan Stuttering Foundation, uh, a new foundation that I started. So um, uh, I feel like David and I have become really good friends quick. David, welcome. Have we not, David? Absolutely. We had had breakfast two weeks ago or so, and we talked for several hours and we could have spent the day there. Yeah, absolutely. And it didn't feel like several hours. It felt like five minutes. It really did. It really did. Uh, so let's jump in and give this sure. context. What What would you say as an employment lawyer uh, is the biggest mistake that employers make when performance managing employees? Uh, well, what, there's, what, yeah. yeah. 
no, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, I could talk hours because there's probably 50, but if you're going to manage it, if you're going to manage it down to one, it's, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So uh, I was, I would say that's a top one because the way our employment laws work is they let the plaintiff, the employee prove a case through indirect evidence. Okay. Indirect evidence is, I mean, most people I think understand what that is, but I'll just give you a quick example if that's okay. Indirect evidence is you're sitting in a room with no windows, okay? All right. And somebody walks in with a wet umbrella, okay? Mm -hmm. That wet umbrella, you assume it's raining outside, but you have no windows in your room, so you can't see that. All right. So if you can see the rain yourself, that's direct evidence. If you can see it when you're when you can't see the rain, but you see a wet umbrella and you infer that it's raining outside, that's indirect evidence. Okay. So when the employment laws were first passed back in 1964, I'd say through probably the first of 20 years, um, you know, through the 80s, you know, there was a lot of cases based on direct evidence. You know, I'm firing you because you're black. I'm firing you because you're a woman. I'm firing you because you got pregnant, right? And so those types and those, those types of cases, you know, were out there. And that's a direct evidence. Okay. Uh, then, you know, employers, people got more aware. And so it became harder to find direct evidence. And so you, the Supreme Court developed these uh, paradigms, these proof paradigms for indirect evidence. Okay. And so that all goes back to my first point. If it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you have, so a lot of times these cases are decided on indirect evidence. Okay. Uh, the mm -hmm. biggest form of indirect evidence is you fired me and you treated me differently than a similarly situated employee who's outside of my protected category, be that age, gender, race, national origin, religion, disability, et cetera, right? And so what the courts will do is they'll say, okay, can you find a comparator who's the same position as the plaintiff, but for their difference in protected categories? And then you can say, well, you treated Dave better than you treated this other person who got fired, we're the same otherwise. So therefore it must have been because of my race or my gender or my disability. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so then a lot of this comes down to like he said, she said. And um and the game for employers is to get the case thrown out before it gets to a jury. Because you basically have juries of employees not employers okay mm -hmm. now that doesn't mean you're automatically going to lose if you get to a jury and i've i've won jury trials but it's still when you're picking a jury 99 percent of them are employees not employers okay so they're going to have some empathy initially for the uh, plaintiff who's the former employee and so the best way to throw that case out before it gets to a jury is we make a motion called summary judgment and summary judgment means 
that we are basically saying to the judge, no reasonable juror could find for this plaintiff. You, you need to throw the case out. And that's after discovery and depositions and all that stuff. So you, you have a writing. So if, if the employer is writing things exactly. up during, during discovery, then the plaintiff's lawyer is seeing, I don't know, they got this pretty well documented, exactly. Dave. Uh, that's, a, that's exactly right. Because a, a plaintiff's lawyer doesn't want to take a case if it's going to get summary judged. Hmm. Because then they lose their, because their biggest piece of the leverage is to say a jury is going to nail you on this but if they can't get to a jury well then they lose that leverage so putting it in writing takes it out of like the he said she said what does good writing look like so you just put it in writing does it have to be sent to the employee like hey i warn you today that you were late again or or whatever the case may be yeah i mean you know it depends on the situation and, and there's no perfect way of doing it but you got to think of overall fairness Right. So like you think about, you know, what's fairness? Juries make decisions not based on the law, but based on notions of fairness. If you've ever served on a jury, you read the legal instructions at the end of the case. Ninety nine percent of the time, a jury's made up their mind already by the time they get the legal instructions. So when they're adjudicating the evidence, they are doing it based on just common sense, everyday notions of fairness. One of the most important important notions of fairness is notice. You had notice that what you were doing was wrong. You had an opportunity to fix it, maybe multiple opportunities to fix it, right? And you didn't fix it. And so therefore we fired you, okay? And so there's an inherent fairness to giving somebody notice and opportunity to cure. I, I just heard two, two major takeaways for yeah. listeners on, on this call. Notice an opportunity. Did did you give the employee um, uh, accurate clarity uh, as to what he or she needed to do to retain their job? And yeah. how long do you need to do that? I, I, I often hear like 90 days, 60 days, 30 days. Yeah. There's this huge misconception of the probationary period for at-will employees. There really is no such thing. I mean, you can call the probationary period, but under the law, there is no such thing. I mean, so okay, like let, you can, let's define at will because I sure. I mean, it seems so like, hey, listen, this is at will. I'm yeah, I'm no longer willfully wanting you here, so you're gone. Then I that's get exactly you. kind of what it is. I mean, if if like if like you, you decide if like I walk into work one day and you decide, hey, Walton, I told you not to wear a blue shirt. You're gone. As long as you get rid of everybody who wears a blue shirt and you're consistent, then you're fine. Okay. I mean, so. But, that, but, but not if you do it by race or sex or, or, or even create the perception of that, you see. So when you're getting rid of somebody, I, if we step away from the paperwork for a minute, look and say, okay, who are the similarly situated people of the person I'm gonna get rid of? Like the same type of job, same type of experience, same type of responsibilities, but those people are outside of the protected category, which is race, age, sex, national origin, disability, okay? Um, and make sure that you're treating them equally, okay? Because, you know, fairness is, a, is not only not a notice opportunity to be heard, it's treating people in the same way 
Okay. And so, um, same uh, way, unless you're a protected class. Well, but no, yeah, I mean, so, like, yeah, I mean, even if you're a protected class, that doesn't mean you have to be treated better. Okay. It, it, it often results perhaps maybe in some members of protected classes being treated better because they have a better basis to sue. Right. But you just got to treat people fair and equal. And, and another way of doing that is not only documenting the uh, discipline, but also having policies. But I mean, but when you document the uh, discipline, you do it pursuant to a policy. Now, I'm not saying that you do. I'm not a huge fan of the, the written progressive discipline where it's all mapped out because I think the employers, especially smaller ones, have to have flexibility. Okay. And, and so, but in terms of having important rules, they should be documented in a policy because it gives somebody notice. This was an important rule and we made you sign off on this. But back to the documenting, I mean, I struggle with it even like with my assistants and stuff because you got to work with people. So when you give evaluations and stuff like that, you're not necessarily as negative as perhaps you should be, okay? Um, and, uh, but in this world, no good deed goes unpunished. And so, you know, you have to be careful. I've seen it a million times, employers trying to do the right thing and then they end up getting burned. And, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't do the right thing, but you know, like they'll try to do the right thing because they have an employee whose spouse has cancer or something and they are, uh, you know, I can't get rid of them. I'm going to try to, you know, keep them going. But then that employee, if they're not going to get better, they're going to end up burning you anyways and see, you know, I mean, if I can just take a step back a second, when I first started practicing law in the mid nineties, if an employer was sued for discrimination, it was like being charged with a moral crime. And they would say, I'm going to fight this like heck because I didn't do this. I'm not a racist. I'm not a discriminator. I'm not a sexual harasser. Okay. And they would fight like heck. Okay. Now these claims are so common. In fact, they're the most common claim in federal court. Discrimination. Yes. Discrimination against any any difference against from the majority employers against employers so uh the case is based on the federal employment laws are the most common case in federal court and so these cases are so common now it's just a price of doing business that's what i hear you know i mean if you fire somebody who's in a protected category it's easy for them to start a lawsuit or to start so they sue and settle, claim. sue and settle, sue and settle. That's exactly, and so that's you represent exactly the, to be clear, you represent the employer yes. in these situations. Because yes. uh, you see all these, um, I don't know, ch money chasers. Like, you know, if you've been fired Personal wrongly, injury lawyers. Yeah, it's like personal, it's, it's a new personal injury. It's a new personal injury. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and so they, but they settle and they settle for good money. I mean, like, uh, what they'll do is like, if, if your standard plaintiff's employment lawyer will get 40% of the take, so they'll get 40% of the settlement. Hmm. So if you have an employee who, you know, that 
you want to terminate, you know, they'll go, and if they're in a protected category, they'll go to some plaintiff's lawyer who just, you know, like has a model complaint. They'll type up a model complaint and they'll sue. I mean, I should really take a step back. You can't, if you're suing in federal court, you can't go straight to federal court. If you're an employee, you got to go through the EEOC or the state administrative agency, which in a, which in Pennsylvania, for example, is the PHRC, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. So if you're going to go to federal court, the first thing the judge asks in federal court is, did you go through the administrative process? Okay. Um, and so all an individual has to do is call the EEOC or the PHRC or any other state agency, and they'll for free draft a complaint for them for free and start a charge with the EEOC or the PHRC. Huh. You see? And then, so it's, it's incredibly easy to start a claim against an em, em, employer. Particularly, then, particularly if you're protected class. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so protected class, can you just, protected class is, can we just define this? Women sure. over 40, is that right? Yeah, it's uh, going to be anybody over 40. Women over 40, or is it anybody over 40? No, it's uh, men too. Men too. Really? I'm yeah. a protected class, Molly. You're in a protected <laughs> class. Um, uh, people with a disability, which, which has a special legal definition, you know, race, gender, national origin, and religion. And then some states and localities will make, um, uh, you know, um, like your gender choice, uh, mm. a, um, you know, a, and they'll, and they have other protected categories, you know, like Philadelphia has some ordinances on a lot. I mean, what we're seeing across the country now is it used to be employment law used to be a federal only thing. Now we're seeing the states getting more involved, especially like New Jersey and California, where their state laws are so powerful. Uh, good employment lawyers in California and New Jersey uh, typically don't file in federal court. They just file in state court because state court is more plaintiff friendly. It's harder to throw the case out before it gets to a jury. And so, um, and uh, they're just, it's a better forum if you're a plaintiff's lawyer. And so, you know, if, if you got, uh, if, if you have uh, clients in states like New Jersey and California, it's, it's really difficult because the employees don't have to go through the EEOC process. They can just go straight to state court. So I'm just, just going to ask you that. Which, which states are the most difficult? We have uh, uh, clients in 32 states. I'd say California, you know, uh, state of Washington, Massachusetts, uh, New York's getting tough. Jersey's hard. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania is kind of in the middle between like the, the southern states and the northeast states, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's still, you know, Pennsylvania is still pretty much employer friendly, but then you have, if you're in jurisdiction, you know, even if you're in a state like Pennsylvania and you are a employer in Philadelphia, you have your own set of laws you got to comply with on top of everything else. Because see what the federal title seven law does, it sets a floor and it says you can have laws, states are allowed to have laws and municipalities are allowed to have laws that give greater rights than what Title VII does, okay? And, but they can't give uh, less rights or, or take away 
the rights from Title VII, which is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so um, that, you know, so it, you know, it, it goes back then to assume you're going to be sued. If you fire somebody, assume you're going to be sued. So, okay? so you're going to be sued and then the, the employer calls in a guy like you. Right. And you're and you're representing them and you're like you're evaluating paperwork. Well, let me see what you wrote down. Um, and did they have notice and opportunity? Um, did you did it, you did, did you have any policies? Any did you have policies written down that yeah. that that through orientation or, or whatever was communicated to an employee? Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it fair and equal? So these, these yes. are things you're uh, assessing so you're yeah. looking immediately for a paper trail yeah right? that's the first thing i asked for is so where's the paperwork during the termination the, the discipline and where's your policies i mean do you always have to have paperwork when you fire somebody no no okay but i mean if you have somebody who does something bad you you fire them and you and and, and then the first thing i'm asking is or where's the policy that says that you can't drink on the job? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even if you don't have a policy that says that you can't drink on the job, you can fire somebody for drinking on a job. It just may be a proof problem later. Yeah. Uh, um, um, but, you know, but I mean, that's like a kind of an extreme easy example, but there's a million, I mean, as you can, because we deal with human beings, there's a million different factual circumstances and they're all different and they all require a different answer, you know, like a, a customized answer. There's all shades of gray in, in employment law. It's very rarely black and white or binary. So do you, you know? immediately try and establish a relationship with the employee's lawyer to say like, what, what is this person asking for and what's reasonable? And you're, you're then going back and forth with the, employer and the employee's lawyer trying to negotiate a fair settlement. This is what's so, it, it crushes us as employers that uh, we can fire someone for good reason and still pay $30,000. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's one of the problems with our system because it's legal blackmail. You know, it's basically like, you're gonna have to pay, and, you know, and I get this all the time. Dave, you're going to have you, your client's going to have to pay a hundred thousand dollars to prove he's right. So why not pay me forty now? Hmm. That's, right, that's crazy, because, right? Yeah, because I can't recover my fees against the employee. It's incredibly hard to do that because the courts don't want to discourage individuals from suing. Now that's the American rule. The American rule is unless there's a statute or a contract, each party pays their own fees. Mm -hmm. Okay. In Britain, the loser, the default rule is the loser pays the other side's fees. Hmm. Here in the US, there's statutes, you know, like you, you can shift the fees in a contract. It's called a fee shifter, or there's a statute. So like in the Title VII, Employees can recover their fees against employers, but not vice versa. Mm. Okay. So and so it's so easy. So, like, if you terminate me, 
and I'm, you know, like I'm in one protected category. I'm a white male over 40. So I'm in one, I'm in one protected category. So if, if, if you terminate me, I'm going to find people that were younger in your organization who were similarly situated did, as me, like the same type of job level responsibilities who were at least six years younger than me, okay, six to eight years younger than me, who were treated differently. And I'm going to say that's evidence of discrimination. And that's all I need to start a claim. So, so that's how, how you start it. And then what I'm hearing from you is write the narrative, start it early. And, and, and there's some mix of um, giving, giving notice to them, but also even documenting every conversation that you've had on, on October 3rd, we talked about this. So you've got your yeah. own narrative and your own files and maybe several times you've, you've given them communication. Now I'm turning over a, a folder to you, David, protect me. And look, this started six months ago. Yeah. We've been talking about this situation. Um, and then, then the, the employee's attorney is going to say, well, you're not going to need that much to prove the employer's right. So why don't we settle $10,000? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm almost thinking like the volume of paperwork and documentation is directly an inverse relationship to the amount that the employer is going to have yeah. to pay. Yeah, certainly. I, I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, I have a, you know, two comments in response to that. One, I had a client once who hired who would hire for their management uh, guys and girls and guys and gals, I should say, from the army, especially if they went to West Point, okay? Because they were trained a certain way in the, the leadership. And these guys did great paperwork because what they would do is they'd meet somebody and they would, and then they would follow up with an email. And when they, and they said, this is, this is when we met, this is what we discussed, here's the expectations going forward. And it was all about communicating the expectations in writing. And these weren't like beautifully written emails or whatever, but it was just like, you know, stuff that you'd expect a military guy to write. You know, it was just like, boom, here's where we met, like bullet, bullet, bullet. This is what we talked and here's the expectation going forward. Okay. And that was some of the best paperwork and it was the easiest the stuff to draft. And I started to use that just in, in that process in the way that I deal with my, um, you know, with the people that work for me, because it's all about setting expectations. And that's at the root of, you know, that's at the heart of fairness. If you give somebody notice of the expectations and they violate the expectations, most jurors are going to be like, yeah, all right. You know, you know, because they, because they work with people who are just not good employees. So that's number one. Number two, I used to be a plaintiff's employment lawyer. Uh, my first job out of college was I was a plaintiff's employment lawyer. I worked for a crazy civil rights lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. It's the best thing I ever did to be an employment defense lawyer because I understand the, the uh, mechanics and the finances of how a plaintiff's operation works. In fact, I used to be the guy that would be on the phone when the employees called to see if they had a claim. Okay. And so plaintiff's lawyers look for situations. They look for certain situations because they have inherent points of credibility and so for example if you have an employee who's been with you for a long time and you fire that person that's somebody who a plaintiff's lawyer is going to be looking at and thinking oh well this person has credibility because a lot of plaintiff's lawyers will get somebody who doesn't last more than two years in a job 
and they jump from you know job to job to job to job, and you kind of know that that's a problem. That this that this person has a problem. But you know, if if someone's at a job 10, 15, or 20 years, there, you know, there is an inherent credibility with that person from a plants lawyer standpoint. So mm-hmm. when you're terminating somebody that has like that long of a of a tenure and has been that loyal to you, you gotta be extra careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you should have great documentation, you know, phenomenal documentation. Um uh, if you're firing somebody who's like, you know, who's pregnant or trying to become pregnant, been talking about trying to become pregnant, those are really bad jury cases. Okay. They just uh, don't go well because it's emotional. No, no. well, and, you know, because we want to protect, you know, there's like an inherent part of us that wants to protect women who are pregnant. And I think it's the right thing. It's like we should. It, you know? it is. But then what if this pregnant woman is just performing miserably? Yeah, I mean, they're basically untouchable. I mean, you're, it's it's hard because it's hard to it's hard to fire somebody who's pregnant or just coming back from being pregnant. It really is hard to do that. If you're willing to, now, I will tell you this: the best way to avoid a lawsuit is to have the employee, when you fire him or her, sign a separation agreement, and the separation agreement has a mutual release of claims in it so you would release all claims against them and they would release claims against you now most employers don't want to do that because then they become it it, it, because then it becomes known as like a ticket you know like a lottery ticket for employees who are thinking about quitting anyways you know they'll threaten a suit and they'll make an internal claim of discrimination and then they know they're going to get twenty thousand paid paid off and so the yeah. separation agreement comes with money. For yeah. I mean, $20,000, we agree. Yeah, so I, I actually recommend those a lot. Um, it's smart. Uh, right? Because it, it just, it, it, it's the front end planning. It even though you don't want to. I recently let someone go. Um, and uh, the person was with us for three months. And I, I gave the person three months pay yeah. in addition. And a lot of reasons why, I mean, it, uh, so, um, you know, pay me now or pay me later, a lot exactly more later. Right. Well, let's get into to workers' comp. You know, someone's hurt. I mean, this happens a lot, particularly in trades here. You know, someone is on the job three days and w- was around the corner on a ladder yeah. and whoops, they fell. No one saw them fell. It turns out they were a uh, repeatable person going from employer yeah. to employer, um, you bring them back. Uh, what, what's the minimum time frame for keeping someone who was hurt and then they come back and you let them go? This happens often. And then what about a person who refuses light duty if they're injured? That's yeah, that's one. like, those are great complicated questions. I mean, first of all, the time period, there is no perfect time period because there's a, a statute in the Pennsylvania workers' comp statute and all states have this. There's anti-retaliation provisions in this statute. Okay, so you can't fire somebody because they previously fired a workers' comp claim, or because you believe that they're going to fire file a workers' comp claim, and that's a form of wrongful discharge. Now we don't see a lot of those cases. I actually have a case like that now pending in Bucks County, in Pennsylvania, uh, where an employee um, is saying that the employer thought she was going to be taking 
workers' comp and then fired them for it. Okay. Uh, but it's the same proof paradigm when you have an employee who leaves, comes back, and then gets fired, you know, 30 days after coming back. So there is no like silver bullet um, time period where you can get rid of the person. It's it, it's 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 hard. I mean, workers' comp and light duty are, are some of the most complicated things that employers have to deal with. Um, so if someone won't do light duty, then can you buy yeah. them? Well, potentially, but it depends on the job. It depends on what, of what other opportunities are out there. I mean, usually what you have is you have someone who's out on comp and they've gone to your comp doctors, right? And, you know, they've gone to the insurance doctors because there's doctors out there that are hacks that work with the plaintiff's lawyers that are that are hacks or that are going to say anything that the plaintiff's lawyers tell them, okay? And so your employee goes to the insurance doctors, insurance doctor clears them for light duty, employee says, I still can't do it. You know, then it's, it's, and then he's going to go, he or she is going to go to a, another doctor and the other doctor is going to say, now nah, this person's not ready to come back. Those are really hard situations to uh, deal with. Second opinion. You know? Yeah, and then you have a battle of doctors. And then, you know, I mean, what I do is I generally tell my clients that if you're, if you're comfortable with what your doctors have said, um, you have to draw a line in the sand or else the fox is going to be running the, uh, you know, the, the inmates are going to be running the asylum, I should say. Yeah, mm-hmm. and at some point, you just have to say you're going to get sued, Okay. So, you know, I encourage your clients to take a look at EPLI insurance, employment practices, liability insurance, Um, you know, because you're going to get sued and it's just, Mm. and it can get expensive. I mean, um, EPLI is expensive. You don't typically get to pick your lawyer. You have to pick a lawyer that's on their panels. Um, And a lot of times insurance companies just want to settle before the deductibles burned, right? You know, but um, it's still a measure of protection. Let's just talk about EPLI insurance. Yeah. What, what is what this insurance doing? Is it it protects you against catastrophic suits? Well, it, it, it usually protects you against suits. Period. If they're even if they're not catastrophic, but you usually have just depending on the program, the insurance program you have you'll have what's called an SIR, a self-insured retention, which is a fancy name for a deductible, okay? And so, uh, like, I have a couple of those cases right now um, where the the insurance program, under the insurance program, the the employer pays the first 50,000 of bills. And then after 50,000, it kicks over the insurance company. But if you wanna pay more for your premium, you could get that SIR down to 25, you get it down to 10, you know, um, but it does give you some cover for, you know, the quote unquote, a bigger suits, the uh, mm-hmm. ones that, that won't go away. But what you tell your clients is really smart. If you can get a separation agreement, e- e- even though it's painful writing that check and it's a reasonable amount where you're not allowing the employee to be a pig, right? Um, it's smart to do a separation agreement and just a bite the bullet and get it over with. Yeah, I, I'm on. seeing 
I'm seeing more and more employees not signing <laughs> that because they they've or you know you you have three days or something to uh, sign it and well if you're over time. forty it's a it's a twenty one days and if you're over forty and you want to release an age claim it's the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act. And so you have a 21 days that they have to consider it. They have to be advised in writing to get an attorney, have to be advised in writing that they have 21 days to consider it. And then they have seven days to revoke their acceptance, even mm. after they accept it. Mm. And so um, that's usually what happens in a separation agreement if, if you want age as, as part of the claims that are being released. Interesting, um, interesting. Let me um, let me ask you a couple uh, tough ones. Sure. There, there seems to be a rampant number of um, HR managers uh, being the ones that are being separated, uh, and they're they're tough because HR managers know the gig, right? Um, and they know where the skeletons are. They are. They are. <laughs> and I, I've actually had three of them um, in the past six months with clients of mine, and they're like, uh, they're like, we've got to let this person go because they're they're just um, they're, they're bad for culture. And now let's go into, to the other mm -hmm. questions. This is sort of a, a, a two edge question, uh, letting someone go for culture. They're negative. They're mean. They're yeah. not nice. Yeah. They're not nice. Yeah. I don't want them in my company. I'm going to fire them. Um, that's a behavioral type thing, which is harder yeah. to fire for. So I, I gave you, a, I gave you a, a two, two balls there to hit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do with them. Well, you know, a, a, a culture is vital. And, you know, people realize how important culture is, right? I mean, it's, it's vital. And so if you got someone who's ruining your culture, that can cause you a lot of money. That, that can really hurt your business because, you know, right now, getting good employees is really hard to get. And if you have somebody who's toxic, who is hard, to get rid of, I mean, that is causing other people to leave, even though that person's hard to get rid of, you gotta get rid of them. Now those cases are perfect for a separation agreement, okay? Mm. I mean, HR managers, you pay a little bit extra for a separation agreement and they basically know that. And they also typically understand it's hard to sue because they've been on the other side of it. It's harder, you know, it's, it's a painful process for an employee to go through a lawsuit. Okay. It's not, you know, it's easy to file, but they're not getting paid for like two years. That's not even considering if, if there's an appeal, usually it takes 18 months to two years to get something through a jury trial. And then in any of appeals. Okay? So, so time is on our side a little bit yeah. there. Yeah. Because it's a, hey, it's a burden of bush is worth a two and a half. And, and so, um, and so that's what, Hey, I can, you know, give you this now, or you might, you might after two years, get something better, you know? And so, or after a year, if it's, if it settles after the discovery process, you know, um, what am I documenting? If I'm interested in culture, like the person's toxic. Um, I don't like, like the HR person, they don't talk to our people. Well, they're, they're mean to them. Or, and, or whatever, what am I documenting there? That's a great question. Focus on objective facts, okay? Such as? So for example, if I say to you, uh, so-and-so is a jerk, all right? So-and-so you know, treats people badly. So-and-so treats people badly, 
Okay. We have to get rid of Molly because she treats people badly. Okay. All right. Right. So I'm just kidding, Molly. Um, so like employers have a tendency to use terms that are conclusory terms, which are subjective opinions, right? Whether or not somebody treats somebody badly or not is a subjective opinion. So you got to focus on objective facts. So-and-so, you know, Molly went into the office on this day and yelled at so-and-so, causing her to be upset. So, so the fact was someone left the office upset. That's a fact. Because Molly spoke to that. That's an objective fact. Mo we know Molly spoke to that person. Yeah. We know the person left in tears. Yeah. That's an objective fact. Yeah. Because, yeah, because oftentimes, especially with, you know, small and medium-sized businesses that have the person running them who built the business, they have a gut feel as to who they want around them. And they've been successful with that. But they have a tendency to express themselves in subjective terms, not objective facts. Okay. Mm -hmm. This, you know, this uh, person's toxic. All right. Well, that's a, sub that's a subjective conclusory term. Why are they toxic? Give me five, six, six examples. Because when you're a trial, you might be able to get away with saying, well, this, this, I fired them because I, I thought they were toxic. But that employer or that manager is going to be up on the stand subject to cross-examination. Tell me every reason why you think they're toxic. <clears throat> okay. And if they can only enunciate two or three reasons, jury's going to see right through that. And they're going to say, oh, it sounds like a little BS. Maybe it was because they were African-American. Maybe, maybe it was because they were a white male over, over 40. You know, that's, you know, that's sort of a thing. So this is where on trial, if someone was mean to a person, then, then the jury may mm -hmm. actually side with, that's not nice. Absolutely. You're not a nice person. You were, you were mean to someone? I have a case like that right now where the strength of my case depends upon the employees coming in, like her colleagues, the plaintiff's former colleagues coming in to testify about how she was a nasty person mm. and how she threatened them and, oh how, and how they were afraid of her. Because it's not enough for the guy who owns the a company, which is like a local franchise, right? So it's a smaller business, but it's, a, it's like a national, it's a local franchise of a national chain. And so it's not enough for him to do to command. I got rid of her because she's toxic and was threatening people. Well, that's like kind of hearsay. All right. So you got to bring in the people that actually the employees who are actually felt threatened by this person. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the jury sides with them, just like it. you're saying, Brian, because yeah. then, you know, and then, because then they uh, sympathize and empathize with the colleagues who were afraid of this person. Because no one likes a bully. No one likes a bully. And so, so if you're able to set that up at the beginning, even though these cases rarely go to trial, lawyers are always thinking of, of, of how is this going to play a trial? And mm -hmm. if you can you know, set it up the right way at the beginning, it undermines the plaintiff's leverage. Interesting. Can, can it, um, a lawsuit ever bankrupt a company oh yeah yeah i mean i you know i mean yes absolutely i've bankrupted companies 
<laughs> I've I've won verdicts against companies on trade secret cases, <clears throat> you know, because uh, part of my practice is employee leaves, they steal documents on on the way out the door. They include trade secrets and they start their own business or they go to a competitor. And I bankrupted companies. I bankrupted individuals, you know, by doing that, you know, by getting big verdicts against them. Uh, on em employment, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely, it can. But a lot of employers now have in insurance. Yeah. Now there's going to be a, um, a coverage on the insurance, like your typical policy might have like a million dollars of coverage or something. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, a, a lot of your employment cases aren't worth a ton of money. I mean, if you fire someone who's making 30,000 a year, 40,000, 50,000 a year, what are their damages? You know, because if you fire somebody, that person just can't sit around. They have to look for another job. They have to uh, mitigate their damages. And if they don't mitigate their damages, that's going to cut off their damages award at a certain point. <clears throat> and so if you have $50,000 of damages in an employment case, the attorney is going to get 40% and the employee is probably going to get taxed on, on the remaining 30,000 or so. Wow. Well, I, um, one more question, because I know time sure. is tight and yeah. you have a busy lawyer sure. schedule where you have to bill so many hours. I know how that works. <laughs> yeah, lawyers. Uh, what What's coming down the pike legislation wise that is either favorable or disfavorable for employers regarding employee law? I, I think you're I think you're seeing a lot more now with uh, technical uh, in, in employee privacy is becoming a bigger thing because here in the United States, employees don't have a lot of privacy rights. If you are using, for example, your employer's computer to conduct personal business, talking with your lawyer about a potential lawsuit and all that stuff, well, because you're using your employer's email account and your employer's computer, well, employees typically in that situation excuse me, don't have an expectation of privacy. It's different mm -hmm. in Europe. It's different in Europe. Europe, it's, you know, employees still have an expectation of privacy, even if they're using their employers, devices, cloud accounts, phones, and stuff like that, okay? So I'm starting to see that change here. And of course, it's starting, starting off in like California. Uh, California has the CCPA and the CPRA, uh, the CPRA goes into effect in January of 2023. Um, so I'm starting to see that more. Um, a, a New York state has a law. If you're going to monitor employees or collect their data, uh, you have to give them notice. And that goes into effect in January. And um, so I think what you're going to see is states copycat off a lot of the California and in New York and New Jersey laws. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I hope we can continue this uh, discussion yeah, in I would love to. San Diego in March. You and I briefly yes. talked about this. Molly will be in, in touch. We'd like to invite you to be a uh, speaker. We'll, we'll have sure. uh, 350 or so participants. And uh, um, I, I want to just summarize a few things that I heard here. Notice an opportunity is is so important to document down. Make sure you're thinking about fair and equal, objective facts when dealing with uh, cultural issues, setting expectations, setting mm -hmm. expectations. The older you get, you probably know this too. You learn life is more about setting expectations yes. than anything else, right? Yeah. And, then, yeah. and then lastly, 
EPLI insurance is uh, a pretty good bet uh, in most cases, but but yeah. also a, a separation agreement uh, process, particularly when dealing with uh, protected classes. Yep. Well, David, that was, uh, boy, those 40 minutes went by quick, 50 <laughs> minutes went by quick. As as always, you're you're so engaging to uh, speak with, and I'm, I'm grateful to have met you and look forward to more conversations. Well, I feel the same way, and you know, if you ever want to do this again, I'd love to do it. I, I'm looking forward to San Diego, and it was an absolute pleasure to uh, meet your daughter, Molly. Your father is very proud of you. He spoke a lot about you uh, when we had our coffee, so... Yeah, you have a big fan in in, in your father. Oh, that that's for sure. Uh, thank you, Dave. Until until next time. Hey, uh, take care, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the Hourglass is recorded and produced by the team at Nolan Consulting Group, a nationwide business coaching and consulting firm with coaches located throughout the country. Have a question, comment, or idea for future episodes? We'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, www.nolancg.com.